Professors FM. Analytics with Mike Lewis, the podcast where we talk about everything you need to know about sports analytics. Here's your host, Mike Lewis, marketing professor at Emory University. Okay, welcome everyone. Welcome to well, this is a this is a podcast that is designed to serve two audience, the Emory Marketing Analytics Center audience and the Fanalytics Podcast audience. Uh, it's it's something a little bit different. I'm joined by Ray Glear today. How are you doing, Ray? Great, Mike. Thank you for having me. Okay, and, and so why I said this is a little bit different because we are. I guess you could almost say, and you know, Ray, feel free to chime in here. We're experimenting with a some interrelated content across various platforms at Emory. So Ray has written an article. Uh, Ray and I talked about some issues in Major League Baseball. Ray has written an article that appears on emorybusiness.com. Uh, I also have some content related to Major League Baseball and the lockout at Fandom Analytics, uh, fandomanalytics.com. And we thought that we could round out the package with a podcast that essentially digs in. And, and Ray, I didn't say this to you before we got into it, but that is almost like a little bit of behind the scenes for how the discussions went and how the and how the article, how your article came about. Uh, before we get into that, I do want to note some stuff here that this is, um, you know, from my experience, this is a, you know, as you guys, regular listeners or folks associated with the Analytics Center know, I'm a professor of marketing at Emory. And so this was a kind of an amazing experience to be able to sit down with someone like Ray, because we, we care about the same issues, but we come from very different respe- uh, perspectives on this stuff. So it was a really kind of an interesting uh, project to work on. Uh, now I keep alluding to, without without sort of giving away the background on Ray, Ray is an amazingly experienced sports journalist, 44 years in the field. He has written for, well, everyone from the New York Times, Vice Sports, USA Today, Miami Herald, the Boston Globe, the AJC, uh, published several books. The one that I actually think is writing really, I, I, I want to look this one up, Ray, is the story of how the SEC became the dominant force in college football, because that's a, that's a story I absolutely love. Okay, now one last thing, and I'll stop being long-winded. And we'll get Ray on the, we'll get Ray's, we'll get Ray involved in the conversation. Is that the Marketing Analytics Center at Emory is a little bit different in that we don't just emphasize stats. We don't emphasize, you know, we we are very open in how we take on issues. And so the issue that we're discussing today is Major League Baseball's lockout. I've done some research using economic models. Um, I talk a lot about incentives, behavioral decision theory. And what's awesome about bringing Ray into the equation is Ray has a deep experience, uh, in fact, talking to and knowing the people involved. So, Ray, right out the gate, you've been doing this, uh, I, I don't, you know, you've been doing this a long time in some ways, going back to the 70s and probably when baseball, labor, and ownership strife really started with free agency. So what's your, uh, you know, before we even started talking, what was your perspective on MLB lockouts and labor stoppages? That I knew right away the fans were going to get caught between 
billionaire owners and millionaire players, and we don't relate to either of them. They are on a different plane. So we're caught in the middle, Mike, and they don't look to us for any guidance on labor issues, but it affects us as much as it affects them. But they are not holding focus groups, either of them, about what we want. They both want their money. And we're here for the ride, good or bad. And it's going to be bad because spring training is a week away. Yeah, we're we're taping this on the the ninth of February, and I've, I've I believe they've they've already postponed spring training once, right, Ray? Um, yeah, as a matter of course, um, you know they know they can't get players organized before the eighteenth, nineteenth, when pitchers and catchers report. Now, a couple of things, and when you were describing the the landscape of this labor dispute, dispute, a couple of things are interesting to me. So number one, no one is thinking about, so we, we always think of these as negotiations as a conflict between the owners and the players. Since you know a lot of the team executives and the players and have known these guys for a long time, how much do these guys tend to think about the fans? Or do they just assume that fans are, the fans are given? You know, the, the fans will always be there. Uh, I'm a member of the Baseball Writers Association. So before the COVID, I was in the locker room a lot. And the players appreciate the fans, especially in the postseason when it gets really loud and the players are on the field. And that is a memory they take for a lifetime. The energy of the crowd. Uh, The Braves will remember forever the noise at Truce Park. Um, They consider the fans, it's gotten better in the last couple of years. But, Mike, there was a time when I remember players not coming out to sign autographs without being asked. And and then it got to a point where they had to be pushed out there to sign autographs. Now they're getting better. And I think uh, uh, a team leader like, Freddie Freeman, when he goes out before a game and signs autographs without being asked, I think other people see that, other players. But you have to have a a team guy that stands up and tells his teammates, hey, don't forget about the fans out there. You need that leader in the clubhouse or it doesn't happen. And I want to believe the 
players mean what they say to me about appreciating the fans. And I think they do, but it is very hard for them to go out in public or let their guard down because everybody's got a camera and a recorder. And it has served to create a space because they have to have their guard up. Okay. And and look, and I think that makes sense, right? I mean, in alluding to the fact that social media has changed the world, that if they go out for a couple of, go for a couple of cocktails, there's probably going to be multiple pictures of them drinking at a bar. And so it, it creates a bit of separation. But I I think what I'm hearing from you is that players kind of like the fans, right? They, They know the fans are important. Do you think the average player thinks much about you? You also said at the beginning that, that this was as important to us as it was to the players and owners. And again, I think that's a, that's an important perspective in all this, that baseball and sports are part of the culture. And so, while I think sometimes these two, and you correct me if I'm wrong, sometimes these two groups, the owners and the players, will view it as, well, we put out a product and the customers come in and buy it. Sports is more than that, right? That you actually, it's part of what holds the fabric of society together. Is it your sense that, you know, how much of the entities involved in all this Think about that side of it, the cultural significance of baseball. They know that if they can create a, an emotional attachment, they will make more money, which is why gambling has gotten some traction in this state. The pro teams in this state want it, Mike. And it's not just to make money, but if they can get a fan gambling on their team, it creates a strong connection. And when you get that strong connection, you you get a fan for life, which is why, you know, the NBA, the Hawks have really tried to go after young kids because they want that kid at 11 because they know at 33, they got a potential season ticket holder. So they do all kinds of youth events. So the owners want a strong emotional connection Because when that happens, you know, even if a fan has $10 in their pocket, the owner can get 11. (laughs) Yeah, it's, uh, it's well said, right? I mean, that's the sort of the, the magic of sports. It's not, it's not just another product. It's, it's emotional connection and it's emotional connections usually going back to childhood, uh, let me ask you this. So we talked a little bit about how the players view the fans, how the owners view the fans. And, you know, I'm kind of getting the sense that they have an understanding of what the fans want and what the fans need. Um, they're also balancing their monetary desires, and maybe they get the balance wrong at times. 
How do you characterize the relationship between the players and ownership at this point, or even how has that changed over? How has that changed over time? It depends uh, about the involvement of the owner. You know, when Ted Turner owned the Braves, the players and Ted Turner were closer. Now you have Liberty Media and they might as well be on the moon. And there's no relationship there. The players and owners, you know, are, have become more distant. I think as um, high wealth people have bought pro teams, the investment bankers, it, it divides the players. It spreads that space. Now, the Tony Wrestler of the Hawks lives in California, but he's here quite a bit about 20 rows up and visible. So the players know he's around and he's watching them and he's making decisions. He's making notes about them. But for other teams, the ownership is seems very far removed. And I think the owners want it that way so they're not close to the players and making any decisions based on, hey, I like that guy. I like that guy. Um, Mark Cuban of the Mavs sits courtside. His guys know him. So I don't know, you know, how much they trust them in a negotiation, but you know they're close to him. Okay, has that changed? I'm I can't help but anticipate your answer. I'm getting the sense that that has that has really changed over the years, and so maybe as ball players evolved in the '70s to guys that were making a few hundred thousand dollars a year to you know guys signing hundred million dollar contracts and ownership evolved from, you know, I, I can't help but think of like almost the family businesses that started a lot of these teams to cashing out to having multi-billionaires that this has become less, I guess, less sort of a small business and more of a big corporate enterprise and there's more separation. Is that fair? Right. I mean, uh, the Yankees were always, uh, their ownership was always in an ivory tower, but other ownership was close to the team. Wrigley uh, with the Red Sox, um, um, different teams like that were closer to the players. Now it, it seems more distance has been created between the players and the owners, which is not a good thing for a labor impasse. Yeah. It, it sounds like the, it's much less of a sort of two sides talking. It's now much, it, 
and it probably was never this way, but it's now layers and layers of lawyers on each side slugging right. it out. They're, they're barking at each other in these meetings, and they can't even agree whether to go to mediation. And it is lawyers and lawyers and lawyers. Okay, so from a, hispor- from a historical perspective, Ray, what do you think of this one compared to, I mean, I guess the labor stoppage people are always going to come back to is the, was it 94, 95, where they lost the World Series? I think Mike, you know, I was living in Chicago at the time, and the White Sox were leading that division, which is an un- infrequent thing back in the day for Chicago. Losing a World Series, how does this one, how did that one feel? How does this one feel in comparison? Well, the Braves, if there had been no strike in 94, the Braves would not have had this 14-year run they had because Montreal was loaded and winning the division. That that strike took a, a lot of emotional toll. Tom Glavin, of all people, was booed on the field by the fans. Why, why was that? Was he the player rep? He was the player rep. And that just seemed so far-fetched to me to even think about that. But he was booed. The uh, fans... Well, Ray, I don't want to interrupt, but can I, I, you know, I was living in Chicago at the time. And so, you know, sort of the Braves were a team in the, in the distance and I can't, you know, Schmaltz, Glavin, Maddox, were all three of those guys loved or was, was Glavin sort of the, the hometown hero? Who was the, you know, it's. They were all three loved. I mean, they were the part of the team. But Glavin was the player rep, and he took the abuse, and he didn't fire back. He was younger. He kept his poise. He heard it. But um, the fans seemed more in line with the players back then. And But in the end, the fans blamed both. And Major League Baseball had been just crossed the threshold of averaging 31,000 fans per game. They didn't get that back, Mike, for 10 years. The fans just wiped their hands and walked away. Millions of fans. And baseball never got to 31,000 fans again per game for 10 years. Hmm. And it it created a lot of ill will. And the NFL was right there to jump in. That happened to be the first year of the NFL salary cap. And the NFL, you know, got this competitive edge to it where uh, more and more teams not named the Cowboys had a chance to compete. Well, you know, and speaking along those lines, I mean, 
the the follow up to the lost world series was the uh, the PED era and following from that or sort of in the midst of that was the and I always think of the the baseball blue ribbon committee as an important part of all the the labor story where they uh, they got a I think a former senator a former fed chairman some other folks and they uh, you know essentially responded to the you know you're talking about the Yan- the the cowboys being dominant in the 90s to that that run the yankees had um right around the the, the turn of the century um that you know the the, the home run era the ped era and then the shift towards some more revenue sharing and luxury taxes. I think of that, and, and look, Ray, you tell me if I'm wrong. I think of that as the bridge from the 90s to where we got to essentially today. Yeah, it went from uh, mom and pop, you know, baseball in the sand lot. It went to big business, similar to what happened in college. Athletics, 2012, ESPN and uh, colleges sign a uh, $12 billion deal. And all of a sudden, college athletics, college football is a big business. Same thing happened in 2002 with baseball. Um, And there was... Uh, com- competition issues back then. The Yankees were uh, kicking, you know what, and they finally brought back a luxury tax they had uh, forgot about, and they brought that back, I think, 2002 to try to make it more competitive. But you know, um, baseball's union, there's none like it. They are very strong and they have fought off uh, raising that luxury tax threshold. They have fought off the salary cap. So, you know, but what they haven't done, Mike, is kept this from being. Wall Street between the white lines. It is just, what is it now, a $12 billion a year industry? Yeah. You know, like I said, I I, I grew up in Chicago, and, you know, Chicago baseball was obviously kind of a disaster in the 70s and in the 80s. A little bit of bright hope in the the 80s with the, you know, Ryan Sandberg and uh, Leon Durham, these kind of guys. But it is striking how post-2000, in some ways, the Cubs have figured it out. And what I mean by figuring it out is it's, it goes along with what you're saying, that there's been these, the way baseball has evolved, there has been a clear shift towards the bigger, more powerful brands that are correlated with being in the bigger, more powerful markets to having an amazing level of there aren't a lot of bad teams coming out of Chicago, New York, and LA, unless those ownership groups essentially make mistakes. I think in some ways baseball has been fortunate to have 
a couple of outliers pop up, right? Like the, uh, you know, the, the Rays being the most obvious one. But it does seem like that that game has shifted to being on the path to having more concentration and some more competitive balance issues. And uh, it's local TV revenue is immense. And Chicago and New York and L.A., I mean, their local TV revenue allows them to uh, spend $220 million on payroll, but $80 million of that they're paying players that are on other teams now. That's how much they were throwing money around. And it has led to some tanking, which is really hurting the game now. The Orioles, I mean, you look at the 100 lost teams. I think there have been seven in the last three full seasons, 100 lost teams, and there were seven in the previous uh, 10 years. And teams are folding, they're giving away players, and it has created some real competitive imbalance. And you can see it, I mean, the players are trying to fight that right now, the tanking and giving away players and teams not paying for their free agents, but trying to get high draft picks. And probably the only issue the players and owners have agreed to in the last three months is how to stop the tanking, which is to keep uh, teams from getting draft picks. If they fold, they're going to make it harder for teams to pile up draft picks. Yeah, that's, I mean, I think we almost see that across all sports now, right? That the, the if you got an amateur draft, and you don't have great local economics, that that's kind of a, that's a fail-safe, right? I mean, in the, the 76ers obviously popularized that in the, the NBA with the process, though I'm not sure, that, not sure that worked out for them in the long term. You know, do you know offhand, Ray, the, um, the difference in the payrolls across the league? As you were talking about some of these teams tanking, it's been a while since I looked at those numbers. But just so you know, folks realize it. I think that we're probably in the realm of, you know, some of these clubs, L.A. and Chicago and New York, spending two hundred million plus on a roster, and at the other end, the Clevelands and the Pittsburghs, maybe in the forty to fifty to fifty-five million dollar range. Is that about right? Yeah, they're up at about fifty-eight million. I think was um, was the low. Uh, the lowest by the Rays. And, you know, for a team like that to win in that division has, you know, just amazing how they, I had a scout tell me, uh, Mike, 
he said, I went into our GM and I said, don't do any deals with the Rays. They are smarter than us. Just stay away from them. And three days later, the GM makes a deal. They get fleeced by the Rays. And I think that was that was one of the GMs that lost his job. I can't say who, but you know, you know, you look at it and the Mets were at 235 million. And I'm sorry, they are the Cleveland Indians were at 29 million. Okay. The Marlins 55. Um, this is by Spoke Track, and this is for anticipated uh 2022. Let me look at 2021. But the, the point is the point is well made that. We now see, and look, with the other major sports, with having salary cap structures, baseball, you're going to have rosters where the, the payroll is one one fifth at the bottom compared to the top. And look, the Rays are kind of an amazing, continue to be an amazing story, right? The, and, and look, this is the Emory Marking Analytics Center podcast, right? And the value of analytics, but I got news for everyone. It's hard to always be smarter than everyone else. Eventually, that catches up to it, especially when the Yankees come in and just buy the Rays front office. Right. And what baseball fans have to worry about, Mike, is that the Tampa analytics is spreading in baseball. And that is the run prevention baseball model where you're, you get a starter that goes three innings and you get six big arm cheap relievers to come in and pitch one inning. So you could have eight guys pitching in a game for Tampa and they have made it a science how to win those kinds of games. And, you know, they pick up great talent like a Rose Arena or Wander Franco and they win like that. And they're, you know, they're 26th in payroll now, 70 million. They're not the lowest anymore. Baltimore is. And Baltimore has been shedding talent and is trying to stockpile uh, um, uh, draft picks. Okay, so to explore this just a little bit farther, I think you're making the point. And look, to me, this is always a story about incentives. The owners do things for the owners. The players do things for the pl- for the players. Very few people think about the fans. Maybe there's even another story in here that as more analytics comes in and people crack the code and figure out how to create a winning ball, a ball club, that you actually make the game less attractive 
and less interesting to the fans. And that is happening. I mean, this uh, zero-sum game, I mean, they all have analytics departments of 2021 people where they had two or three people seven, eight years ago. Now the game is looking at numbers, and I wonder how many managers actually fill out their own lineup. I think they get a memo at 2 uh, p.m. that says the numbers have been crunched and this guy pitches in this inning and we're going to make a switch at uh, right field. I think the veteran guys that need to hit in the same spot every game, you can fill them in. Freeman hits third, um, Votto hits third, fourth. You put them in because they need consistency, but the these lineups get filled out by uh, data people. Okay, Ray. Major League Baseball, you've been looking at these guys, you've been covering these guys for more than four decades. And I, I'm going to ask you this question in two, in two parts, two ways. How worried about the game are you in general, and how worried about the game are you because of this current lockout? I'm worried that uh, the fans uh, have grown tired of three-and-a-half-hour games. They've grown tired. Are you get, just a quick interruption? Are you talking about the younger fans, particularly, or all of them? I think all fans have grown tired of the three and a half hour game and the parade of relievers. They have changed some of that. <clears throat> they have brought in a pitch clock to move things along. They need to keep. Uh, batters in the batter's box, no more stepping out. They haven't enforced that. They're especially worried about young fans not catching hold of the game. I mean, uh, Major League Baseball is now trying to get into communities, Mike, and get small-town community baseball programs going so kids can uh, experience the game. There's been too much pay-for-play travel baseball, which and those economics have squeezed kids out of the game of baseball. So I'm worried that they have a chance at a lockout right when they're vulnerable and they could lose a whole flock of fans. The game has some great young talent is coming up, but fans are tired of the long games. They're tired of the 100-loss, 90-loss team, 
And now you're talking about wiping it all out for several months. It's not a good uh, uh, combination. Well, let's, uh, let's end on this final question. You said potentially multiple-month multiple lockout, disrupting opening day. You want to offer a prediction on how this is going to play out? I think they agreed to a mediation to try to close the gap. You and think they bo both sides blink on this one? Both sides realize they're... I think they realize there's $12 billion at stake and they give in. The owners give the players a DH in the um, National League. The owners allow free agency after uh, four years instead of six. Um, they agree to some change the arbitration. They are already going to agree on how to get rid of the tanking. Um, I think it'll push up to opening day, probably push back opening day because nobody is going to rush their arms through spring training and risk any injury. They're going to want 30 days of spring training. So maybe we're looking at late April for this thing. Even that pushing back, move, having to move opening day strikes me as a disaster for these guys. You know, right now we got the Super Bowl, we've got the Winter Olympics. It's kind of beneath the radar. But I think pretty quickly here, this story is going to start to, as soon as the Super Bowl ends, this story is going to start to get advanced and people are going to start to, they're still going to start to feel the heat on this stuff. Yes. And, you know, March Madness will keep people's attention. But in March in Florida, when the hotels are empty and the revenue is not coming in and sponsors, sponsors want some money back for the deals they made, it should spur the two sides to deal. Uh, more closely, but I think the fans are going to go heck with both of you. Thank you, Ray. Appreciate you coming on and talking through this stuff, Ray. Um, like I said, love your perspectives on it because it's so different than where I come from on this stuff. Thank you for having me, Mike, and asking the question. And yeah, it probably a role reversal for you, right, Ray? Yeah, I'm used to. Uh, really harassing somebody and saying, what do you really think? <laughs> okay. And, and so just as a final word to the folks out there, this has been really kind of a, a labor of love talking to Ray about this stuff, putting some of the content together. Uh, I'll, there will be links at the bottom of the, the podcast and on the website, but just to see the complete package, Ray's article at emerybusiness.com. Um, some of the academic research at fandomanalytics.com and the podcast, just where podcasts are found. Thank you, Ray. Thank you, Mike.